Hey everybody, welcome back to Art Smack. This is episode 12. I'm your host, Mac Apasso, and I'm here with Jerry Gagosian. Jerry, what's going on? How you doing? I am doing wonderful. I'm here, ready to cast my vote. In case you don't know, I'm a member of the Academy. For the Oscars? Yeah. Since I'm, when? It's actually something I inherited from my great, great, great uncle, Oscar. We got a great episode for you this week. We are going to hit on everyone's favorite emerging blue chip contemporary artist, Hunter Biden, who's back in the news. And then it's my favorite time of the year. It's Oscar season, baby. Oscar season. <laughs> We're going to hit on the Oscars. So as a reminder, this is an independent podcast. So your guys' direct support is immensely appreciated. Please, 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 at the end of the episode, give us a five-star rating on iTunes or Spotify. And while we are Hollywood legacies in Tinseltown, out here in podcast land, we're little nobodies without your five stars. So be a fellow, would you? Give us a five-star review. For old Oscar's sakes, would ya? Welcome back to Art Smack. I can't believe we have to talk about it again, but we do have to hit on Hunter Biden, who is back in the news. There has been multiple reports that the newly elected Republican Congress is very curious about what went down at Hunter Biden's art gallery exhibition last year in New York. So, Jerry, what are your thoughts about Hunter Biden, his art, and the Congressional Republicans' investigation to come? Mr. Councilman, this just to me is evidence, once again, that the Republican Party, first off, hates the American people and their love of fine art. I rest my case. Yeah, it seems like, it seems like the government, once again... Is, Once again, is just going after abstraction. Leave abstraction alone. Yeah, you know, as we know, the government has a long-standing policy of attacking the blue-chip contemporary art space in New York City, attacking New York City dealers, and they're going after one of our own this time, and it really grinds my gears. I don't know if it grinds your gears. I mean, Hunter is one of us. Hunter is a member of the tribe. I know, ever since they saw that video of him smoking glass cigarette. Like, well, I don't know if that was a glass cigarette. Or, yeah. Just maybe having a little private time with himself and his iPhone. I could relate. And like, who hasn't fucked up like, like a gas company abroad here or there and like made a few mistakes on behalf of the American people while doing some C minus like abstract painting on the side. So the story here is this week, a committee chairman, Republican representative James Comer of Kentucky, longtime fan of figurative painting. So I, this could stem from that. His collection is just quite beautiful, actually. So he sent a letter to Biden's New York art dealer, George Berger demanding information about the artist's sales. Did you sales. just call him George? George, George. Georgie. Make him more American. George Berg demanding information about the artist's sales. So, quote, your arrangement with Hunter Biden raises serious questions, ethical concerns, and calls into question whether the Biden family is again selling access and influence. Comer also said, despite being a novice artist, wow, big burn, Damn. 
Damn. Hunter Biden received exorbitant amounts of money selling his artwork. The buyer's identities remain unknown, and you appear to be the sole record keeper of these lucrative transactions. Comer cited recent articles around Biden's December show at the gallery, where the dealer said the prices for the artist's work range from $55,000 to $225,000. Quite the the bang to start off an emerging contemporary art career. Not, Not these days. First of all, I wanted to say not these days. Second of all, Mr. Comey, have you ever heard of outsider art? Didn't think so. Keep going. Well, quote, it is concerning that President Biden's son is the recipient of anonymous high dollar transactions, potentially from foreign buyers with no accountability or oversight. Mr. Comer, I'd like to introduce you to art. <laughs> what do you think happens at like every other gallery in the auction house season, huh? Mm-hmm. I mean, in this case, it's obviously different because of Biden's relationship to our central government. So Comer wraps up by saying the American people deserve transparency regarding certain details about Hunter Biden's expensive art transactions. Jerry, do you think the American people should know who bought Hunter Biden's work last year? Well, according to Georgie Borgie in his last Artnet article, He said that he was doing nothing but selling Hunter Biden's artwork to upstanding American businessmen and even fine American homemakers. I think that was like the the quote. So if that were the case, like... What's the big deal? You got nothing to hide. You got nothing to hide. But I would rather point my invisible pointer to the the rabbit behind the curtain that is the opacity that is all art business comings and goings that tend to be rather opaque in general. This is not an industry known for it. Clarity. You know, democracy, the irony in that, there, there's rarely very little honesty about who bought what for how much on which day and for why. So when it comes to, you know, the president's son while in office having his first ever sellout show that no one was allowed to go into. Yeah, that was true. You had to, I remember when I came out, I wanted to go, but it was, they had some sort of appointment system that, that you, you couldn't just like walk into the gallery yeah. and view things. You had to sign up and then you were giving a time slot. And I don't even think everyone who wanted to see it was able to. Mm-hmm. I think they kept a tight lid on who could walk into that space. Yeah. I don't know. Kind of smells ratty if you know what i mean when the exhibition was announced the white house did make a comment because of just overwhelming pressure and the white house allegedly and i think not allegedly i think the white house did help quote develop a system for hunter biden to sell pieces with the galleries i think the gallerist agreed not to share any information about the buyers or prices of work with anyone and agreed to reject any offer that seemed suspicious I would assume that the White House had understanding of who was buying the work. They were setting up this process. So, you know, there, there was some sort of protocols in place 
Was this like a quick cash grab for Hunter? Like, did he, does he really want to be an artist? I, I would say, look, Hunter Biden has the right to exhibit his artwork, create artwork, and work with the gallery. Would you agree with that? Like, he has the right as a human being yeah, to have his sure. work exhibited to the mm-hmm. world, right? It, point number one is, should these works have been priced as high as they had been? You know, I wonder if this article, or I wonder if the story around this would be different if Hunter Biden's work started off in the gallery selling for like, you know, 5000 to $10,000 per piece, right? And there were eight works there. Would there be this huge kind of uproar? Maybe because he's been targeted by the Republicans for the last, you know, five years. I mean, it's been constant investigation since that laptop story, three years. But I, I wonder if, yes, the prices were a little bit lower that, you know, people wouldn't have blinked an eye. But the fact that some works reportedly sold up for $500,000 for a first time selling. I mean, that's what like a Hauser and Worth big blue chip artist primary works will sell for. Right. And it's it's definitely a little eye raising. I mean, they were like asking for it, truly. They were asking for the outrage. Yeah. Gallerist, Hunter Biden, like they were asking to have people ask questions and put in the White and House also, in a tough spot. It's not like he needed the money. Right? No, when you're when you're I don't know his financial position. Obviously, he's had a a rough decade or so. But like when you have when you're when you're that close to positions of immense power, like you have access to things that capital can't even money can't even buy. I think the guy is. We saw this with George Bush too. I think it's like he found a creative streak in his life, and he wanted to share. It. And I do think he earnestly paints. I don't think this is like some sort of weird, you know, like scam. I don't. Mm-hmm. But the whole thing felt scammy by its structure. You know, a gallery in New York City, these high prices, a secretive sales process. Like like I said, I think they were kind of asking for it. They were asking for the magnifying glass to be pointed in their direction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I I do think, well, again, this raises a, a bunch of questions because is it fair that this gallery now has to share its client lists while you know, the other galleries in New York City and across the world don't. And that's by intention. Like galleries keep their clients close to their chest. There's competition. They don't want other people to know who their collectors are. They want to keep some sense of privacy. And now the kimono is about to be opened on this guy probably. What is that called? Oligarch. I mean, that's Yeah, when you're an oligarch, any of the Russian oligarchs, whether abroad or in Russia, period, but you're buying or selling massive contemporary artworks, upwards of hundreds of millions of dollars, likely with money that has been taken from the Russian people or given to you by Putin. And you you know, we we want to know who are these dealers that are doing deals with you. And now that we're making it illegal for you to do deals with these people, we want to we want to open up your books and look into that and not only make sure that those deals have been halted, but maybe we want to do some some reverse engineering on those deals. We want to look back and see how long those deals have been going on for, et cetera, et cetera. 
the Democrats could have gotten really ugly and really nasty. But because I think there's maybe been some, you know, as we've mentioned before, there's definitely been some donating. All of the mega galleries have been donating to Democrats for as long as far back as you and I really looked, which has been the last, I don't know. I, I would say like, yeah, to the McCain-Obama run, we, we did like a little, because all, all the, the donations are publicly available online. You can yeah. see the mega galleries, the owners of them, and even the senior people there that had money to give. I didn't see one donation. I, I saw some donations to like Mitt Romney, maybe McCain, but I didn't see any to Trump. Right. It was all going to Clinton, Obama, Biden. Right. And Sometimes in big dollar amounts, you know. So, so not to be conspiratorial, but, you know, I'm sure it was one of those things that when, oh, we're not, we're not supposed to sell to Russian oligarchs anymore. Let's just, let's just end it right here, allegedly, and let the black market take it from here and, and hope nobody looks backward. We could only speculate. It's possible that everything was done above board. <laughs> Doesn't mean that the works should have been priced as high as they, they were. But nevertheless, it is possible that this is up above board. And perhaps a, a committee is welcome and the Republicans will have egg on their face because it was bought by the same people that collect. I mean, who do you think bought these things? I don't know. It's not even that much money, really. Oh, I, yeah. I don't know how many paintings were in the show, but maybe a million dollars of a sale potentially up to maybe a little bit more. I don't know what the, I didn't see the price list, but yeah. So I, this investigation, we'll see what happens. Apparently the the gallerists will be responding soon, quote, and that a fun fact is that Biden's, Hunter Biden's former girlfriend is also in a separate legal process asking for the sales data. And that's related to child support payments, an ongoing legal battle. Oh, interesting. So I do think I do think one way or another the the buyers of Biden's works will come out. So yeah. I hope, hope those people, you know, were prepared for this when they went into the gallery and they mm -hmm. decided to buy the works. So we're about to wrap up the month of January and we're heading into February and every year this is one of my favorite times. It's Oscar season. And I know, audience, you might be saying, wait, this is an art podcast. Yes, it's an art podcast. Today, we're talking about the cinematic arts. Uh, you know, uh, film. Wait, I thought that art was just painting. We want to talk about the Oscars because it's a huge passion of mine. I think since, I think, college, every year when they announce the, at least the best picture nominees, I always make an attempt, sometimes I fail, to try to watch every single one. As his partner in crime, let me let me vouch for this. The man's making me watch every Best Picture nominee this year. I did. I think I crushed like six of them this week alone. And you were like, Matt, what are you doing? You're just like watching TV. I'm like, no, I'm working. I'm prepping for the podcast while He's I'm watching Top Gun Maverick. Working. <laughs> so last week, the Oscar nominations were announced. Wait, wait, wait. What? What are the Oscars? You know what the Oscars are. Well, I know that my great, great, great uncle, Oscar, was a great man, but what are the Oscars? Well, the Oscars is the award. Oh, okay. And but what's the, the Academy? 
What's the Academy? The Academy? What's so the, the Academy Award? Because you always hear this phrase like the Academy Awards or the Academy, you know, yeah. they selected this year. The Academy is short for the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences. It's like a professional organization in Hollywood. It was founded in the 1920s. By a bunch of mobsters. I don't know. Is that true? Who knows? It's, and obviously it hosts this ceremony. The Academy is comprised of, I think it's 17 branches which is like actors, directors, screenwriters, editors, et cetera. They're all bucketed that way. And people in Hollywood and in the business join the Academy. It's by invitation only. And then they do a voting process every year for you know their winners. And Wait, sciences? You can get a science award? It's like the motion picture science. like the- Oh, like the science of motion pictures. Yeah, we'll talk about that when we get to the, okay. fab- the Fablemans. One of the movies this year really gets into that. Okay. As I said, the membership is invitation only. If you guys recall, there was a bit of an uproar in 2016 about the composition of the Academy, which historically skewed towards a lot of older white geriatrics who would vote on movies, and thus that was reflected in the nomination process. Mm. And the Oscars announced there was a phrase for it, and forgive me, I don't have it in front of me, but they wanted to change the composition to include more Diversity, diversity of thoughts from gender to race. And the Academy now is spread a lot more evenly across a diversity of thoughts and, and backgrounds. So what are some of your favorite memories of the Oscars? I mean, last year we watched, in LA, we watched Will Smith's, Will Smith's performance. I can't believe was, that was a year yeah. ago. It still rings true like it was yesterday. I was, I was, I think I was watching it on your couch in LA and I was watching it live on my laptop. And I think I screamed to you and I was like. No, I was right there. Oh, you were? Okay, yeah. But we were just like, I thought it was a bit when he went up and smacked Chris Rock. I was like, oh, that's a bit. And then the moment he started to scream, like, keep my wife's name out your fucking. And I was like, this is not a bit. This is not a bit. Abort. Like, cut to commercial. I was so uncomfortable. I was laughing because that's my response mechanism. I was like dying in uncomfortability. It was it was ridiculous. I mean, there's been a lot of fun Oscar moments for me. I try to watch it every year. Well, one thing you don't know about me is that I grew up not being allowed to watch TV. You know that, right? Really? Yeah. I, so I, That might make sense because when I first met you, you had this, not strange, but you were ferociously adverse to owning a TV. Yeah. That was your thing. That was like, I don't have a TV. I None only, of my friends have TVs. I only have a TV because of Matt. That's true. Watching movies. and No, I like stuff. watching mo- films and movies and stuff, but I don't, I'm not a TV person. I've never been. But I never watched like an award thing in my life ever. Plus, you can always just like see like the moment in like the grocery stores in the like checkout aisle like you know like the i like looking at the dresses and stuff but i i do know one big thing somehow and i hope this never changes every single year for like years i don't know who how or what but the sunset tower like gave me the best table for dinner on the night of the Oscars every single night. I don't know who they thought I was or if like there was a blip in the computer system or what, 
But every single night on the year of the Oscars, I would just show up like I was like someone very important. They thought you looked like Uma Thurman. Okay. I don't look anything like Uma Thurman. Kate Blanchett? I don't know. <laughs> no. <laughs> like Charlize Theron in Monster. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I got to like always have dinner with all of the celebs. So that was always fun. The other thing is, is they market in Hollywood for the Academy Awards, like with all of the, what do you call it? The billboards. With all the billboards. Like with, they market for the Academy Awards with all the billboards, like three months leading up to the show. And so all of a sudden you're driving down the road and you're like, why are these old movies getting like re advertised? Or why is there a sign that's like Scarlett Johansson? was sensational in and like some random ass movie and then you realize oh they're they're marketing just for like the 29 people that are on that one panel like so serious real estate in the sky gets put into like getting the people on the academy award panels eyes onto that just to see that to like know to vote for so-and-so, you know? And what was the other thing I learned living in Hollywood? It's a, it's a very, it's just a very, 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 very big deal. Like, they, it's no jokes there. It is. And we'll keep the focus of, of this podcast on Best Picture because we can go into Best Actor, Actresses, supporting all that stuff. But like, you know, this is not a, a movie podcast, so we don't want to nerd out too much. I'm just, I'm going to quickly go back in time to the last couple Oscars and read which picture won best picture and mm-hmm. see if it kind of reflects the zeitgeist and like of we, when things changed. Yeah, or or just not even that, but it, was it was it accurate in the time or did some of these not look so bad? Because there's a very famous, which is like one of my favorite Oscar, I guess, fuck ups, was in the 1990 Oscars. The nominees for best picture, 1990 was Godfather Part Three. Ghost, great movie. We love Ghost. Awakenings, missed that one. Dances with Wolves, which won Best Picture, and Kevin Costner, I think, won Best Director, and Goodfellas, Martin Mm. Scorsese. So Dances with Wolves beat out Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas, which, like, I know cinema snobs, like, you know, you want to talk to me about Buñuel or, you know, who's the Swedish guy? Bergman. Or Fastbender, like Fellini. I've seen all this stuff. I respect it. I love it. He's so. only seen it because of me. Bull, bull. So COVID, funny. I made, during COVID, the first few months, I made a vow to watch all these great movies that I had missed. Okay, and I got an okay, education okay. in like you know, art cinema. So it's not like I'm just like the big blockbuster guy. Like I watch stuff. But like mm-hmm. Goodfellas is a great movie. And it, probably it is a great movie. It probably should have beat out Dances with Wolves. So there have been Definitely. some just ridiculous ones that in the past the Oscars has screwed up. So in 2020, the winner was Coda. Do you remember Coda? Did you see Coda? It was the, the the deaf girl. Her family was deaf and she wasn't and she could yeah. sing. And Coda in 2020, it was Nomadland. Frances McDormand. Did you see that? That one was really yeah. good. That's one of my favorites. That movie made me so depressed. It's a but it's it's really really. You think good. that was best picture worthy? Again, some of the other ones. What were the other Mank, ones? Mank, Trial, Chicago Seven, Sound of Metal. That was pretty good. The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah. I think that was probably right. 
2019 was a big one for South Korea. It was in Parasite. Yeah. Took the Oscars by storm. 2018 was a little bit of a controversial one. That was Green Book. Mm -hmm. They beat out Roma, A Star is Born. Just look at this. They beat out A Star is Born? This is when the Oscars, like, I don't know. Like, if you think about now, to me, and people are going to crucify me for this, but like, to me, the most important movie of 2018 out of the categories are here was A Star is Born. That's going to have some real legs, you know? I do feel that way. 2017. He cries every time he watches that movie. movie. 2017, Shape of Water. That was a controversial one. Moonlight, 2016. Spotlight, 2015. Love Spotlight. Birdman, 2014. That was a big Oscars for me. I got really into this one because I loved Birdman. Some people hate it. I thought it was amazing. And then the other one that I absolutely love was Whiplash. Miles Teller. J.K. Simmons, the drummer, jazz drummer. Well, he hasn't seen many of these. <laughs> I haven't seen a lot of these movies. So within the last years, there's a couple that I think still hold up, a couple that maybe are a little bit questionable. But why don't we get into this year? I'm gonna I read... thought this year was pretty good. We saw all of these. We've just gotten through all of them. There are one, two, three, four, five, ten nominees for Best Picture this year. We'll go through each of the Best Picture nominations in order that the Vegas odd makers are saying they're the favorites to win. Okay. So let's say start off with the favorite. One, I think it was the first one we saw. We watched it at my parents' house, which is Everything Everywhere All at Once. Oh. We liked it. I- Michelle Yao. No. I sneezed. That was lucky. That's lucky for, I think it's going to win. It is the favorite. It is like this doesn't mean anything to you, but it's minus two twenty five. So it's a it's a decent decent favorite. It had that kid from Indiana Jones, and I'm gonna butcher his name, but Kehu Kwan, who didn't act for like twenty years, unless I do an interview of him, where he had this big childhood rise with the Goonies, with Indiana, Indiana Jones, Jones, and then he very sweetly talks about in an interview like it dried up. I I, I lost. My ability, it was nothing he did. It seemed like Hollywood had moved past him. And then he ended up taking a lot of behind the scenes roles, like just working on movie sets, doing odd jobs. And then the Daniels, the directors of this came out and said, we want you for this. And my quick take is that it was certainly the most creative and inventive of the of the stories that I, I watched this year. What, what were your thoughts on that movie? Oh my God, it was amazing. It was, it was the first time in so long that I felt that I saw innovation and not innovation in like a green screen, let's edit this really fast and make a million things blow up. And I mean, I really loved, I know it's not a movie. I liked like all the Black Mirror TV series, but those were like really set out to like scare you. They were like, created for the sake of like really scaring you and they were invented because or they were easy to write I think because they were so close to being reality and this was like nothing that was close to being reality this took true imagination and heart to write and then like to find the actors that would embody these characters and play them when they're low and they're humble and then when they're at their highest and I just 
loved every single minute of that movie. And even though I thought they had the happiest of endings, I didn't want it to end. Like, I just wanted to just keep riding with them. Yeah, it was a fun story. There's a scene at the end where Michelle Yao's character and her daughter, Joy, who was kind of the villain figure, also known as Jobu Tobaki. You remember that? (laughs) They were like warping through multiverses and they end up in like a rock universe where they are both just stagnant stones looking over a cliff and you're the dialogue is not verbal but it's written above their their like little stones like captioned and it was just so sweet where they're like we just want to be rocks here and it, it got it kind of emotional at the end but it's filled with action it's fun it's approachable the time stuff is it takes a little bit of thinking to understand it but it's not it's not christopher nolan style like tenet complex where you're like, yeah. you have no idea what the fuck's going on you kind of get it world yeah you're like you know there's like multiverses and they steal power from other versions of themselves and it's kind of it's kind of straightforward so that is the favorite i think the daniels are also favorited the directors daniel kwan and daniel scheiner are favored to win best director she michelle Yao is not favorite to win best actress really Kate blanchett is for tar which we'll get to and then again, I'm so sorry for pronouncing the name. Kehu Kwan is favored to win Best Supporting Actor. Next up is The Banshees of Inner Sharing. That was fucking good. I mean, that's a movie about art. For those who don't know that the general plot, it's it's a small story. You know, this isn't a big multi-location shoot. It takes place on the island of Inishering off of Ireland. In the backdrop, there's a Irish Civil War going on. You kind of see cannon fire and you hear some of the effects and see some of the effects from it. But it's a story about these two guys who were best mates for a long time, Brendan Gleeson and Colin Farrell. And one day, randomly, Gleeson's character just decides he doesn't want to hang out with Colin Farrell anymore. And the reason, the rationale is that Gleeson is at the end of his life and wants to create art and leave a lasting legacy as opposed to banter around. There's like a famous conflict point in the famous, but a, an important conversation they have where Gleason and Farrell are talking about, do you want to be not remembered and be a nice person? Or do you not want that to matter? And you want to be great and live through the ages and leave a lasting legacy. And Gleason's chosen art form is music and he wants to write a score like Mozart or Bach that'll last and you see Colin Farrell struggle with this he's losing his best friend his life unravels it gets violent it, it was a really beautiful story did you like it you were like your eyes were like half closed when we were watching it the other night no but. no no I, I I went back it's funny because have you ever had a have you ever been unfriended before of course it's a universal, I mean, it's happened. It, it yeah. can hurt. It's like a breakup. And he really, Colin Farrell was like going through a, a relationship breakup. Yeah. Somebody, I it reminded me when I was, I probably deserved it. I was wild. When I was like 20, this person who was really good friends with me at the time, she unfriended me without giving me a reason. She just totally unfriended me. And I, I still to this day don't know why, but I remember that feeling of like when he's like, I, I wait, I don't understand. Like, you don't want to talk to me anymore, <laughs> you know? And he's like, no, you know? And I mean, he had at least had this noble 
sort of feeling of like, well, I'm going to go on to make something great. And I conversely, like I have done the opposite, which is I had a childhood best friend who, when I decided to move and start studying art, when I came home to visit and I had wasn't done studying, I was just in the middle. She was like, you've changed. And I was like, I know. And I said something really mean to her then, not to make this about me, but just to make this movie identifiable and to understand both sides. I said something to her that now hindsight, like I wish I could have been more graceful and better and not as such a little dick. I said to her, you know, we're we're historic friends and we'll always be historic friends. But I don't think we're friends anymore. Wow. Yeah, and, it's yeah. tough. And it, and it, and I, but I I was immature, so I was young and I didn't have the words for it. But what I meant is like I don't want to hang out with you anymore and just like you know, get messed up and like hang out with like boys that you run around with and like have our weird drama with our weird little group of friends and do whatever. I want to like travel the world. I want to see things. I want to try great things. I want to push myself to great levels. It's funny. That's that's the story of, of Banshees. It really is. You're the Brandon Gleason character in that. I would say this is like my dark horse, like wild car. I mean, it's not. It's the second favorite and then it's really everything ever all wants and Banshees are like pretty high up in the favorites. Just on the betting odds. And then it drops. And then there's a significant drops of Fablemans, which we'll hit on next. But I think I think they'll go they'll give it to Banshees. I think Banshees have been a share. I think that'll be really? best picture. Yeah. It Why? Was, I I just think it it it's a story that really does resonate. I think it's like a Colin Farrell like comeback. I think the Oscar loves narrative and he's had like a weird career. I think He's he's done a lot of like funky. He's had too much career. I'm sorry. He's, but I think people like from people liked his Batman performance recently, where he was like the the penguin guy. He's and hilarious. I, and I think he's charismatic. And I think the Oscars loves his story. There's also we won't talk too much about it, but there's Brendan Fraser from the Mummy, who just did the movie The Whale, who won the Golden Globe. That's another great story. And I think the Oscars can be narrative in that way if you look at the history of it. What about Michelle Yao? Like, give people who like never won an Oscar. She could potentially win. So, let's let's keep moving. Let's jump to Fablemans. This is Steven Spielberg's story of his love affair with film and cinema, and it's told from when he's a baby with his mom and dad and his sisters to when he's, I would say, a young teenager, maybe fifteen. No, he's not a teen. He's about to go to college. That's where the movie ends, and it's this snapshot of his life. And it's an autobiographical film. It's beautifully shot. It's well acted. I really liked the performance of the kid who played Spielberg. And it's one of those just feel good movies. It won a Golden Globe for best drama. And then I think Spielberg won for best director. I think Hollywood loves movies about itself. And and Spielberg is one of them. So what did you think of, of Fable? I, it's a touching love letter that Spielberg wrote about himself to himself and yeah it's a it's a touching you know retrospective that spielberg gave to himself 
And like, I'm sorry, but who cares? Like right now, I don't know. Like, isn't that a gift that somebody gives someone else like to him when he's no longer telling the story or something? Or like, isn't this a book or a journal that he sets aside and in his will, it's tucked away. Have have Uncle Oscar's triple niece below direct this one as a Oscarial debut, you know, like like why? Why? Come on, like look at look at all the other movies there are. Like, I'm sorry. Enough. Enough I, of I, you. There's a lot of stories out there that can be told. I'm not sure if this one was necessary at this time. That said, it was a personal project from Hollywood royalty. It's a good movie. Like I, I did, especially I thought the the second, the the last kind of act I thought was really well done when he's like going to college and he's fighting with the bullies at school and he's like getting internships at CBS and meeting John Ford played by David Lynch, which is like a kind of fun, weird cameo. That said, this is not a movie that people are going to remember in five years. I mean, this is really one of those that's just going to be cemented in this time and not hold much relevance. That's my hot take. But now- we get to the big guns, baby. What? We're going to the highway to the danger zone. Top Gun Maverick in the fourth spot for best picture odds. Top Gun Maverick, a plus 1,000. Tommy Cruz, what did you think of Top Gun Maverick? Come on, and you can be honest. She's rolling her eyes. I think this movie should get an award for making money. There should be an award. Movie that made the most money. <laughs> well, that's an interesting point. I mean, two, I'll just say two movies this year in the best picture odds were like huge fucking blockbusters, like billion dollar blockbusters. Good, put that in that category. That doesn't mean it's a good movie. Top Gun Maverick and Avatar, Way of the Water. Like doesn't, big. Doesn't mean it's a good movie. Critics loved it. The public loved it. Huge movie. No. I think Cruz is one of the best action hero like carries a movie with his gravitas guys we have in hollywood i do i know you're rolling your eyes but i think like i love what he's just doing his cruise thing and he's like awkward around women and he's like doing his own stunts and you know there are some action scenes in in top gun maverick that'll that are pretty jaw-dropping i think you can at least agree with that no what are you what are you talking the plane stuff, like when he goes Mach 10 in the beginning and the mission. But he's not flying those planes. He's flying a plane. He's flying a plane. <laughs> All I say is like Top Gun Maverick is popcorn Hollywood at its best. It's a good movie. It's not best picture winner. It's no one got nominated for the acting roles in it. I'm sure it'll probably win some like sound editing stuff or whatever on the technical side because it is pretty cool some of the stuff they did with the planes and all i'm saying is that entire you know like those memes that are like about like zoom and they're like when the whole thing could have just been done in an email like that whole mission could have just been flown with one with one drone. little drone. We talked about this. With one little drone. But they didn't do that because we had to see Tom Cruise, Maverick, whip out the plane and one more bleed, time. And bleed like 
hundreds, if not billions of dollars of technology into <laughs> peril and danger and risk all these young children's lives into danger for his ego. Sad note is I think that is the last time we will ever see Val Kilmer alive in a movie. Yeah, that was a sad scene. And I love that. There's a touching Kilmer. Val Kilmer moment with because him and Maverick. That's it for Val Kilmer. Next up, All Quiet on the Western Front. This was a great movie that I'll never watch again. It's fucking heart-wrenching. It's intense. It's it's a war movie told from the German perspective in the trenches. It's tragic. It's I think it's an important story that doesn't get told in, in kind of Western Hollywood, and I'm glad it did. It's a good movie. Tar, Cape Blanchett. So Tar is a fictionalized story of a very powerful classical music conductor, Lydia Tar played by Kate Blanchett, who's favorited to win Best Actress. I had so many fucking problems with this movie. Mm -hmm. I like, we were talking about it. We it, pretty much share the exact same sentiments on this. I know stories that have structure where there's like, you know, act one, act two, act three. There's an action that takes place between one and two that moves the character forward. This is a two and a half hour movie where we didn't basically move to act two until like 45 minutes left. And then it felt rushed at the end. And... She's a pretty remarkable actress. I don't think it was her her fault that this movie didn't work for me, but I think the story and the plotting and the pace, I think we're just all off. I mean, she might win it just because she is pretty captivating in it. It's kind of a, a me too kind mm -hmm. of story. And I think, you know, the Academy likes to tell those stories and reward those stories now. And you know, there wasn't much to remember it by. I mean, my major issue was it's the story of this genius conductor who's at the top of the game and you never actually see her be a genius. You mm -hmm. literally just watch this person go through a precipitous downfall mm -hmm. that culminates in her, spoiler alert, careens into a dark place by the end of it mm -hmm. and her name is stripped from her and it's, it's not a good hang. It's not a good hang time. It's not like Top Gun Maverick, baby. Yeah, thing that I, yeah, I thought that the, the the structure and the pacing were totally off on that movie. The thing that really stuck out to me was Kate Blanchett is arguing with her student about a male composer, and he's saying, "I don't want to work with that material because it turned out that he treated women terribly." And she says to him, well, I have news for you. You know, we work with the human race here, especially in the arts, and you're going to have to look past the, the man to look at what he did artistically. And I feel like in all of the art, we hear that mantra sent our directions quite often. I know in in film in particular, since we're talking about that, we hear that about Polanski, we hear that about Woody Allen. Just like, well, you know, I try not to focus on what he did and I just look at his what he did in the art the films he made. And I think that was the point that she was trying to make. And obviously there's a reading that the 
director of the film is trying to make you more closely examine by way of this character. It's one that I felt very personally frustrated with. And I hope it's something that didn't just go slip past me and then just move it on up through the dialogue and keep going because it's a very nuanced argument that each person has to have with themselves when it comes to artists that they like and the types of art that they therefore decide to take in and what they decide it means to them because artists are by no means perfect people. Artists are blessed with gifts that, you know, sometimes can seem divine, but they are people nonetheless. And it can feel very frustrating sometimes when people with divine-seeming gifts can do horrible things, and then we're, as humans, supposed to make these moral judgments on supposed divine non-humans, but they are humans, you know, and it, art can feel very confusing when it gets mixed in with all of this. So I think that that was probably the only good sort of line or takeaway I got from that whole movie was that they were forcing the audience to once again in whatever genre, whether it's music, cinema, fine fine art, whatever it is, ask the audience to remember that, like, just because an artist may be delivering you something from on high, that doesn't mean that they're not human. I can't tell you how many artist studios have Paul Gauguin books in them, you know, as just the reference. And... Yeah, I think people struggle with that. You know, separating the art from artist is like the cliche you hear. So next up is Women Talking. We watched this last night. To me, it felt like a play. I mean, it's truly like a play about women in a Mennonite colony who were abused by the men there, and they're coming together to decide what to do. Frances McDormand's in it. One of my favorites, Rooney Mara. Which you have such a crush on her. Acting crush on Rooney Mara. Such a crush on her. And, and Jerry always gives me shit for it, but I think I'm putting it out. Rooney Mara is being misutilized. This is the first time I saw her. Well, not the first time. She's done it in like, you know, Dragon Tattoo and such. But I think she's like a really high end actress that's like, I don't know what her agent's doing and putting her in some weird roles, but like, I think she's really captivating. In this movie, she plays a major role in, in leading these women. It's a good movie. It's not. It, it, it's certainly being reflected in the odds. I don't think it's, it will win. It's certainly achievement. It's an interesting plot. The title, Women Talking, it's literally a movie of women talking in a barn together. And it jumps in flashbacks and kind of tells the stories of each of the women's abuses and their reactions to it. But it always brings you back to the centralized room where these women are trying to decide whether they should stay, whether they should leave the convent. What do I think? Yeah. I think Frances McDormand is just getting better and better. Yeah, yeah. She wasn't She wasn't that involved in this movie. She was yeah. kind of in the background, but like her gravitas. Just her 
presence is it's, just like it's she's comforting. It, yeah. I I just feel like comfortable. Like I I feel like if she was just like the one in the back, she's like, Come here, we gotta cut off your right arm. I'd be like, She's making the right choice. Like she just is a good like I feel like she has great leader. taste. Great taste. Like everything she does is like a good, yeah. a watchable movie. I mm-hmm. watched that first Coen Brothers movie that she was in. Like Blood the OG, Simple. Blood Simple. And like you could see it there that she's just like one of the goats. Always a good, good actress. Yeah. Let me ask you something. This is a tangent. Who is the actress of the 21st century? We're going to put Meryl Streep kind of. Meryl Streep's great, but she's like, you know, 20th century. Is it Frances McDormand, Bonchette, Olivia Coleman? Like, who is the most important actress of the 21st century in these 23 years we've been we've been cruising? I think McDormand's got the, she's got the the bling to show for it. Blanchett's been kind of killing it for 20-something years, I don't too. know. Kate Blanchett's too cold. Yeah, that's tough. The, the correct answer is Tilda Swinton, and there'll be no debate about it. <laughs> I love Tilda Swinton. I really do. Well, you're going to love this next movie, so... Avatar, the way of water. Okay, so I know the audience is rolling their eyes. Darling, the, when did the first, how old were you when the first one came out? I was like pre-20. Okay, exactly. Just exactly. That's my point. <laughs> what do you mean? Just exactly. I'm you, sorry. You you have an emotional relationship to this movie that harkens back to a certain age. I think this audience particularly is not going to be into Avatar, way of water. I would say I respect James Cameron, okay? I do. I'm sorry. I like pretty much everything he's ever directed. What else has he made? Titanic. Okay. Avatar 1. Titanic. Terminator. Like, the guy knows how to do these huge blockbuster films that make a lot of money. I think he's like, of like the top grossing films of all time, he's got like at least two of them, if not three of them, like in, in his bag. One of the things about Avatar that's, at least interesting to me is that the first one was done, whatever, 2000, yeah, so, 10 plus years ago. It took him 10 years to put the second one together because he just wasn't just going to crank out a sequel for the, for the studio. Like, I think he, he was going to do it right. He, was, he had to wait for technology to catch up. Like, the guy's a maniac. He truly is. I'm and, not going to say, how about I just step, I'm going to sit out of this and let the chef cook in the kitchen let on this one let me hang myself no 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 i'm gonna let you go i'm gonna because you know what i i was gonna say earlier can, can i say something and then yes. i'll let you go no i got nothing else to say it is what it is it's a blockbuster popcorn entertaining movie it's a little long i like how he doesn't have to explain the world again like he did in the first movie you just jump right into it jake soley's got a family i didn't know he made titanic and when I went to see Titanic when I was 12 years old, it was the first time that I'd ever seen Leonardo DiCaprio, besides What's Eating Gilbert Grape, where he plays a very different character. So let's just say I didn't have any sexual feelings for him. And all of a sudden, there's this beautiful Leonardo DiCaprio. And this beautiful Kate Blunch, or no, no, Kate Winslet. And this- well, by the way, is in this Avatar movie. I just wanted to point that out. Okay. She plays a CGI. Of course. Navi. I, you know, 
To be honest, I didn't really know the story about it. I didn't know the boat was going to sink. You were just staring at those baby blues of Leah. No, I know that this is a story about a boat sinking. So we get all the way to the end, and I'll never let go, Jack. I'll never let go. Proceeds to let go. Proceeds to let go. Bye. I cried, and I was in the movie theater with my mother's best friend's daughter. Her name was Alexis. I cried so long and so hard that the lights came on for the movie theater and they could not get me to leave the movie theater. And she was so embarrassed. See? James Cameron, baby. She was so embarrassed. She had to go get my mom from the parking lot and they had to drag me out of the movie theater. James Cameron magic. So James Cameron's magic worked out a 12-year-old very, very... Well, and a 30 year old in Avatar Way of the Water, which, by the way, continues James Cameron's two movie streak of kind of shitting on American imperialism. I mean, I'm just going to leave it there. Watch Avatar through that lens and you'll see if you haven't picked it up already. All right. Next, we're moving through it. We got two more. We got Elvis. Baz Luhrmann, you know, he does his fucking Baz Luhrmann thing. The movie is excess. It's, but it's like, it's got that same frenetic energy pace. I'd say the movie shines when Elvis is on stage. Austin Butler's Elvis is performing, which Butler did all the singing. And he really kind of, if you watch side by side, Elvis stuff, like, you know, it's a pretty remarkable achievement for an actor who was like doing Nickelodeon TV shows not too long ago. And it's entertaining. It's, if you like Baz Luhrmann, you'll like this. If you don't like Baz Luhrmann, you're not going to like this movie. Lisa Marie Presley's. One of her last live or her last live interviews she ever gave right before she died a week ago, two weeks ago, she said it was the best performance anyone's ever given of her father. He did a pretty good job. So he's he's not the favorite to win Best Actor. Austin Butler, that's Brendan Fraser, and then second is Colin Farrell. But Butler did win the Golden Globe in his category, and you know people like. Go check out some YouTube clips of him like doing the Elvis thing if you just want to get a sense of it. You don't want to dive into the two-hour-plus movie and do all the Baz Luhrmann experience, but it's pretty amazing. that The performance scenes, I think, in it, of him on stage is, is great. Last but certainly not least, this is a fan favorite of, of Jerry and I. If you don't know, Jerry is of Norwegian descent, and thus she has a blind loyalty to any Norwegian art. That's so cinema. true. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Scandinavian cinema and art is her bag. Ruben Aslan's Triangle of Sadness. We did we talk about it on the podcast? We talked about the square, like maybe a couple of weeks ago, which is Aslan's. Yeah, because I, I he's Swedish. Oh, he's Swedish. Okay, so I am so sorry. I meant Scandinavian, but Triangle of Sadness is Aslan's. I think he's Swedish. Anyway, <laughs> Triangle of Sadness is Aslan's first a primarily English language film. I think when we watched the square a couple of weeks ago, I I said something like. I don't mean to sound like a genius because this movie was already getting buzzed, but I was like, fuck, this is a great director that like, I want to see him do, you know, I want to see him work in Hollywood and try to see what he can create with like huge budgets. And, Mm. and I didn't even know that Triangle Sadness was made and it comes out and it's, it's kind of a surprise add to this list. People thought maybe like the woman King or something else would get there, but it is a plus 20,000 favorite to win Best Picture, so it's in the category of not a chance in fucking hell it'll win anything. Mm-hmm. But nevertheless, we, we really enjoyed it. 
It really has. We said it while we were watching it. It's got the White Lotus style. Wealthy people being depicted at their best and worst, and then the staff that supports them at their best and worst. And it's got the nose metaphors. Like There's the really famous scene in it of when the boat is going through a little bit of a rough patch and a lot of the guests get sick. And I've seen that in movies before, but this one goes on for like 25 fucking minutes of people just being sick on a boat and it's just you're in hell they transport you into like wealthy hell so what did you think of triangle of sadness i loved it yeah i love that movie yeah it's it's good what about the performances the acting i don't think that any of the performances it's an ensemble type of cast so it doesn't to me the individuals never stood out to me in particular, like even Woody Harrelson, who I really like, it, he could have been played by almost most any other kind of good actor. I'll just say, I think he brings this kind of anchor for the audience who's never seen this guy's films before, where it's like, oh, Woody Harrelson's in this. Yeah. Like, oh, I know Woody Harrelson. That, that but guy. like, it could have been any. It's almost better that a lot of them are sort of anonymous because they're they're sort of these very entitled, wealthy, indulgent people who all think they're someone really important and that's key to this whole movie, like the the people above ship sort of, like the the patrons and the truth of the matter is is that they're no one special, really. And then the people that serve them at the upper mid-level are like, you know, seen early on in the movie being told, like, never say no to them because your reward will always be money, 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 money. They start chanting that. You do yeah. that for a reason. Like, there's this big, yeah. But then the people that are even below them who don't get that cleaning staff cleaning yeah. staff they're like the they get zero incentive and and go figure like after the really rough night at sea when you know all the toilets overflow and everything's been thrown up on the first line of duty to do all that cleaning are the ones who have zero financial incentive so it's like the lowest of the low come out first to clean and eventually like the the other staff come out, you know. And I won't give the rest of the film away, but it they get shipwrecked and very quickly the hierarchy of who's in power changes and I like stories like this. And I like to see how People are malleable and they're manipulative and they're willing to lie and they're also willing to change and grow and do all these different things for the sake of surviving. And survival means different things to different people. So I love that movie. I can understand why it wouldn't win. First of all, because the people who are voting are definitely the people that float on the top of these ships. So they 
I think would only be able to see like maybe if like Lars von Trier was like and like if like Lars von Trier and the guy that made Parasite and maybe like who else <laughs> Ingmar Bergman if he was still alive like maybe if some very very deep thinkers were who are thinking about class structure and society were on this panel they would vote it but because like so many just truly wealthy people are on the on these academy boards who get paid to make things that celebrate these academy and boards and celebrate movies that make the most money for the most people I don't think that this movie would win. No, it's like like it would never beat if it was in a head to head with like the Spielberg movie, right? In the Academy, like they would not. Because <laughs> you're right, it's the black humor satire of the upper crust of society. There's even a scene where Harrelson and another of the people on board they get into this like very public argument about capitalism versus socialism. So they're, they're like drinking and toasting, and it's funny because the one the one passenger is he's Russian. And he's the capitalist and Woody Harrelson is this vehement like Marxist. He calls himself like a Marxist and they're reading passages back and forth while like the, the world is going to hell underneath them. But I think this was my most memorable movie of the 10 that I saw. I know we went through these pretty quickly for you guys. And like, if you're still listening, Jerry, what are the three films from this group that you would suggest the audience prioritizes and maybe gives a watch before the Oscars if they can only pick three? If you want to feel hopeful, everything, everywhere, all at once. If you need, if you, if you're feeling like really down and low, I, I would watch that. That that gives you a beautiful sense of hope. I would say, if you would like to see shit smeared on the face of the rich, triangle of sadness, and banshee. If you want to sort of scratch your inner like Odyssean lone hero. And then you should watch Top Gun Maverick and Avatar Way of the Water if you want to be entertained and have a great time at the movies. Right? Agreed? Yep. She's nodding sure. her head. So the Oscars are Sunday, March 12th. So there's going to be like a whole bunch of lobbying and jockeying for people. And they do this whole like campaign process and interviews. So get ready for that. We got a fun Oscar season. So I hope you guys enjoyed this trip down the cinematic If you arts. watch any of these, email us at... Hello at artsmacpodcast.com. Let us know what you think. I want to hear your thoughts. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Now I want to go back and watch that ship scene from Triangle of Sadness <laughs> again. And also, shout out to Hunter Biden. I heard that he's doing a live performance at Freeze where he'll be getting <laughs> raided by the FBI. <laughs> In the booth, the Freeze LA. <laughs> what is it called when it's like called like positions or something where it's like it's like for first solo shows for yeah. emerging artists. They're going to put his booth by the back door so that they can keep it quiet and not disturb the rest of the people gallivanting around. Well, speaking of Freeze LA, we got a special little announcement. Well, we'll tease something right now. We're coming to LA. Art Smack is coming to LA, baby. And 
We can't speak on it too much yet, but just know we're coming. But in the meantime, what should people be doing? You should be subscribing to gagosian.com and move your little fingers over to subscribe and at least become a premium subscriber because we are going to have some special invitations for events during Los Angeles for our premium subscribers. So more to come on that. Just keep it in mind. You might want to become a subscriber. Mm-hmm. Remember that we're an independent podcast. We rely on your guys' support. So please slap us with a little five stars. Uncle Oscar will thank you. This has been Real. As always, Jerry, thank you again. See you guys later. See you in Hollywood. <laughs>